business and buckets. We're out here, episode 99. And boy, do we have a loaded show today. And it's not just loaded because it's football season. It's loaded because the business and buckets podcast network is going over a change. We are going to be rebranding into an MMA and business episode only. I've been hinting at that the past few weeks. And this is the last full sports episode. I wanted to be able to end before I had to, you know, deep dive into football. We will talk college football. My NFL season predictions going down today. MMA action, UFC and Paris. We have UFC pay-per-view this weekend. So much sports to talk about. And I'm fired up. It's Thursday afternoon. I have a softball today. It's beautiful um, late summer, fall weather in the Pacific Northwest. And I'm getting prepped, man. I'm moving to the desert, to the to Phoenix, Arizona here soon. I'm going to be going MMA only. A big reason is I just wanted to change. It'll be my ninth year here this fall. But also some MMA connections and business opportunities I have out in the desert. That's what I'm looking forward to. And uh, we're going to dial this in. We're going to dial this in. We're going to grow the business and Buckets Podcast Network. And I'm super excited for you guys to be tuning in. I'll be sharing this. You have questions. You have feedback. You want to talk a little football for the last time. Talk rankings. Talk how I have the season predictions. Let me know. I'm all ears. I like to engage. That's what it's all about. But before we talk all the sports action we're going to talk the one and only sponsor here at Business and Buckets, and that is Fueled Supplements. Obviously, here at the Business and Buckets podcast, we are proudly sponsored by Fueled Supplements. If you guys are an elite athlete, a busy mom on the go, or are looking for the perfect product to suit your daily wellness needs, Fueled Supplements has you covered. Choose from their selection of premium sports and wellness formulas backed by over 30 years of market experience. And trust me, that's why I'm fired up. I took my daily multivitamin. I took my fueled greens. I'm jacked up and ready to rock because we have so much sports to talk about on this episode. So let's dive right in. We're going to talk MMA at the top of the show because that's what's important. That's where my expertise is going to be coming in for the future And we have some banger of fights booked. We have Bruno Silva versus Albert Duraev. That's going to be fun. A grappler versus striker. I mean, Bruno's kind of well-rounded everywhere, but more of a a grappler versus striker matchup. Ultimate uh, Ultimate fighter semifinalist Brady Heisted taking on Fernie Garcia, the Spokane local. Getting in action. He trains with Michael Chiesa in Spokane. It'll be fun to see him. One hell of a fight. Finally, the return of Darren Till versus Dricus Duplessis. And holy shit, this one's going to be fun. A huge step up in competition for Duplessis. And uh, everyone's eager to see Darren Till back in the octagon. Nate Diaz Army stand up. We got Nick Maximov taking on a very, very tough grappler and Jacob Malkoon. We're going to see his grappling skills pushed to the test here. Finally official, we knew it was going to happen, but UFC 281, we're getting Dustin the Diamond Poirier Poirier versus Iron Mike Chandler. 
banger alert all day, every day. That's going to be fun in Madison Square Garden. Andre Petrosky, another Ultimate Fighter alum, taking on Wellington Terman. That's going to be a great fight. And uh, a headline fight here, um, I think in October, Alexa Grasso squaring up against Vivian Arahu. That'll be a fun banger on the women's side of things. Some fights that I was really hyped up with some bad news. We have Giga Chikadze pulling out of his fight against Sadiq Youssef. I'm assuming it's injury-related, but I don't have any details on that. And then Jack Shore out of his fight with a knee injury against Kyler Matrix Phillips. Boy, oh boy, was I looking forward to that one. Uh, but Jack Shore done a lot of amazing things. I'm sure he'll heal up and be back representing Wales better than ever. Uh, we'll talk about this gentleman later, but Alessio DiCirico retiring from MMA. Tiago Santos, the fucking Thor-looking motherfucker, joins the PFL, leaves the UFC. Uh, that's the second pretty good size name heading to the PFL. Shane Burgos, more in his prime. Tiago Santos, not so much, but still a problem in the octagon. The PFL must be celebrating. I'm sure he got a nice payday. And he gets a chance at a milli. This fight I've been really excited for on the women's side of things. Amanda Limos versus Michelle Watterson. It got rescheduled for UFC 280. And then it was announced that Nate Diaz is going to launch his fight promotion. Uh, this is his last fight on the contract. He says he wants to fight 15 to 20 years. I mean... I love Nate Diaz and all the things that he's done. You can't tell him he can't do something. But at 37 years old, all that scar tissue, all that damage he's taken, I just don't see it happening. I have no idea where he will fight next. Maybe it's just boxing. Who knows? Uh, you can't doubt the man. You're excited to see what he does. I mean, the odds are against him this weekend, and we're all fired up. I know I am to see what happens. Wyoming... Um, Alum and legend Bryce Misfit Meredith back in action this weekend in the LFA event in um, in Colorado. I think it's Vail, something of that nature. Uh, he just had a merch drop as well. I scoped one of his Misfit t-shirts. Really excited. Another showing in the LFA, getting him that much closer to the UFC. Hopefully be able to link up with him when I move to Phoenix. Um... Finally official, Jake Paul taking on Anderson, the Spider Silva, at like 49 years old. It's official October 29th. It's happening in Arizona. That will be fun to see. Uh, probably Anderson Silva's toughest test to date, although the Spider is fucking 50 years old. This week, another week of Dana White Contender Series, and it was a solid week. We had Vitor Salvo looking great in the light heavyweight division. He'll be joining the UFC. The Bonfim brothers looked good in welterweight and lightweight. They also got UFC contracts. And then Carl Williams with a nice heavyweight showing. Uh, a grappling match, a striking match. Something that you don't always see in the heavyweight division. But let's talk UFC fight night in Paris. I went 7-4 and four in picks. It was a fun card. Some fights that we didn't break down. Some impressive wins. One was uh, by Abus Magomedov. The front kick, 19 seconds in. Shuts the lights out. What a showing for him. 
Uh, Ferez Zian, the local French fighter, looking very much improved in this fight. Uh, more well-rounded, grappling, wrestling, which has been his weakness coming in. So the French crowd was loving him. Stephanie Egar with a nice performance and Christian Quinones with a nice display early on as well. But we're going to start in the prelims. We had Benoit Saint-Denis with a second round TKO over Gabriel Miranda. This was a performance of the night. And I'm telling you, what a fight to get the Paris crowd popping. I mean, this was the first French fighter on the card. You could tell the crowd was going nuts every time they showed a Cyril Ghosn high, uh, like hype-up trailer up, up on the top screen. The fans were early. They came for the prelims. You loved it. Obviously, there's some French fighters here. And every time uh, Ryan ha uh, uh, St. Benis had a, a big moment, the crowd was going crazy. And this fight delivered. I mean, the ex-Special Forces stud, Benoit, the god of war, came for war. He came out swinging. He had spinning elbows. He was going to do whatever he could to put on a performance in front of the hometown crowd. And, you know, Miranda's tough. He had some moments as well. But Benoit almost had the finish after a knockdown early in round one. It was back and forth. He gets the knockdown. Looks like he was going to get a finish, um, but wasn't able to. Miranda was able to live to the bell. And round two, the God of War was blood hungry. He came out early, smelt blood in the water, and he got the finish. The crowd went bonkers. Now, I like Benoit. I really saw a lot of improvement in this fight. He didn't let the hometown pressure get to him. Sometimes having that crowd, they're chanting for you, all that pressure, it can get to you. Well, I mean, the guys in the special forces, I'm sure his nerves are calm, cool, and collected. When we look at the stats, Benoit landed 81 total and 42 significant strikes with the takedown and three knockdowns compared to Gabriel's 33 total and 20 significant strikes with the takedown. He had three attempts. Benoit is now on a two-fight winning streak. He's 2-1 in the UFC, 2-0 at lightweight. He had uh, changed uh, weight classes. While Gabriel falls to 0-1 in his UFC debut, Tough bout for your UFC debut on enemy territory. I'm sure he gets some brownie points regardless. Now, what is next? How about St. Denis versus Terrence T-Rex McKinney? That would be box office, if not maybe Rick Glenn. And for Gabriel, how about Kyle Nelson? That would be a good next bout, his second uh, fight in the UFC. Now, this was originally in the, the, the card got changed five times. What the UFC does with their, their card changing throughout the weeks, I have no clue. This was a main card fight. But we had Nassar Dean, the Russian sniper, Amavov, with a unanimous decision over Joe Keen, New Mansa, Buckley. And, man, what a performance by I, uh, Amavov. I think people forget why he's a ranked fighter. But my biggest takeaway in this fight was Amavov is definitely as good as advertised. He deserves that ranking. He's still improving dramatically. He's still a very young fighter. But Buckley has heart, man. He's a dog. Um, they just showed that went viral. The Coastal Carolina coach from a few years talking about having a cat in the house. He's like, don't be a cat. We need some fucking dogs. Well, Buckley is a dog. He showed his heart, his willpower. 
but he just looked so much smaller than Nasser Dean. I mean, if welterweight is an option here, I think he should definitely take it. I'm not too sure. Obviously, he's more muscular. Muscle weighs more than fat, but he clearly looked almost two weight classes smaller than Amavov. And Nasser Dean uses length. I mean, he was able to wrestle him, which, you know, a lot of people have tried to do that with Buckley. Buckley's gotten better at it. Um, he was even able to outdo Buckley on the ground. You know, clearly he had to be careful to not put himself in danger and be too cocky because he was putting his... He had a lot of antics. He's putting his hands down. He's trying to show out. Um, you know, he's not from France, but he, he's he's close to the area. Had a, he was the fan favorite here. But he was taking unnecessary shots being too cocky. In round two, a lot of them. In round three, Buckley knew he was down two rounds to zero. He gave it everything he had, and he was coming in strong. And Amavov wasn't being as elusive. I'm sure he was tired. He was gassed out. Um, but it, it was a crazy finish and you love to see that from a fighter like Buckley putting it all out there. It keeps her stock high, even with an L now, statistically Amavov landed 68 total and 51 significant strikes. He did have two takedowns, although in seven attempts, he did have two submission attempts while Buckley had 55 total strikes, 46 significant and went over on takedowns over three. Now, Amavov is on an impressive three-fight winning streak, obviously over Buckley. He's beaten Edmund Shabazian and Ian Heinish. His only UFC loss was to Phil Haas, which was a majority decision. Amavov is 4-1 in the UFC. He's only 26, and he does stay at number 12 in the rankings. Buckley, he has his three-fight winning streak come to an end. He is 5-3 in the UFC. So I would love to see a Mavov. Holy fuck, what a fight this would be. Take on Kelvin Gastelum or Andre Muniz. I think those are guys that are higher in the rankings. He deserves a fight that's higher in the rankings after this showing. He's still young. They'll play him slow. But those are great fights that everyone's going to want to see. And for Buckley, he could square up against Ian Heinish. Um, I think that would be an appropriate fight. Heinish hasn't been active in a while. Elsewhere in the main card, we had Nathaniel Wood with a unanimous decision over Charles Jordan. So I ended up picking Jordan. This busted my parlays. I did take Nasser Dean and Benoit. Um, I knew this would be razor close. I was just confident. Nathaniel joining a new weight class. He's a smaller framed fighter. I thought Jordan could use his length and pick him apart. And I did think this would be a fight of the night option. You know, obviously there's the main event, even the co-main. But I was super stoked for this fight in the featherweight division. And I mean, Jordan came out the way I thought the whole fight would go, right? He was aggressive, as you'd expect. He was using his length. He was using his jab. He was using his kicks to keep Wood at distance. And Wood had a couple, you know, basically, Jordan was picking him apart. Wood would have to take a couple shots to throw three or four, but he would have nice combos. Round two and three, shit was different. Uh, Wood was able to hang in there after round one, which not a lot of people could weather the air Jordan storm. Um, but Wood likes to make fights ugly. That's what he does. He landed his powerful, you know, trademarked kicks. He outboxed Charles. He didn't fall for the flashing flying knees. I feel like that's so much energy to exert when it doesn't land. You're up in the air. The other fighter can kind of tee off on you. And he was able to do get those counters. He even wrestled Charles which was able to em empty that stamina uh, tank, so to speak. 
but he showed he was just the more durable fighter. Uh, he was smaller. Jordan clearly looked better. But, I mean, Nathaniel Wood is a dog, just like Buckley. He's going to be a threat in the featherweight division, even though he is smaller. Maybe he could find a way to, to, to thicken up that frame. Statistically, Charles landed 115 and 86 significant strikes. He did have one takedown and two attempts, while Wood had 128 total and 97 significant strikes with five takedowns and eight attempts, so very good right there. Charles leaves the fight um, on a brutal two-fight losing streak. He is only 26, though he's still young, while Nathan is on a two-fight winning streak. I would love to see Jordan from here take on Herbert Burns or Jonathan Pierce. I think people love Jordan enough. Herbert's coming off a loss. He could get that fight. You know, he's probably higher up in the rankings. Jonathan Pierce, pretty similar to him, but still a dog. Either fight. You see Charles on the card, you got to watch. And for Wood, how about Josh Colubio or Daniel Pineda? Those would be bangers. I'm sure he's hyped up to keep this momentum train going in the featherweight division. Now, another fight I got right, we had Nazrat Haparis with a unanimous decision over John McDessie. And this fight was really just Nazrat getting his confidence back. That's the way I saw it. Um, while Meanwhile, John was just showing how durable and tough he is. He was talking shit. He was trying to make this fight personal for whatever reason. Um, and when he was taking shots, MacDessie kept throwing back. He kept pushing forward. He was controlling the octagon. But Nazrat was kind of circling, picking him apart, and, and, and really taking the advantage each round. The big thing that kept John in the fight was when Nazrat would rock him, though, he didn't push for the finish, right? He kind of was chilling, so John was able to recover, and he wasn't throwing a lot of big combinations. He'd jab, kick, land them both, but he wouldn't follow up four or five strike combos. I thought he could have been a little bit more aggressive, but he's been on a couple losses. He doesn't want to put himself in a bad position. I understand it, but you could do more than just jab, 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 hook, jab, kick. Just kick, do a little bit more, be a little bit more aggressive. He was towards round three, got some takedowns as well. Uh, John did land 73 total and significant strikes compared to Nazrat's 72 total and 64 significant. The stats don't always tell the tape, uh, tell the tell of the tape. I don't think John landed all those as significant. They were very close in range shots. None of them were, not a lot of them were head shots, maybe body. While Nazareth was chipping him apart, yeah, maybe he had, you know, 64 significant strikes, but I'm sure he landed more than John did. And then Nazareth had two takedowns and three attempts with the knockdown. Clearly, it was Nazareth's fight. He was dominating the whole time. The stats make it seem closer than it was. John now starts a new losing streak, and he has one and one since 2020. And for Nazareth, he ends his two-fight losing streak and is two and two since 2020 himself. So I would love to see Nazrat versus Jim Miller or Joe Selecki. I think those would be a ton of fun. And for John, he could fight Christos Giagos. Either way, I'm excited to see Nazrat continue to move on now that he may be more confident. Then we had this fucking fight, man. What a, what a crazy fight. We had Roman Kapalov with a third-round knockout over Alessio DiCherico. And this was just a crazy fight. I thought Kapalov snaked one from DiCherico. 
I don't think Alessio believed in himself either. I mean, the stats don't quite tell the tape here either, but Alessio is winning rounds one and two, not easily, but I, I definitely think the judges would have gave it to him. Um, he had some conservative striking. He wasn't throwing a lot of combos. He had ring control, but he was the aggressor until round three. Round three came around and Kapilov turned it on, man. He had Alessio up against the cage again, but this time Dietrico, I don't know if he was gassed, being cocky, what the hell he was doing, but he was standing up against the cage with his hands down looking at Kapilov, and Kapilov was like, all right, boom, boom. Every shot landed on Alessio's head, about five clean shots, dropped him, and that's the fight. Um, if I'm in Alessio's corner, part of his team, I'm like, dude, what the fuck? Like, what are you doing? You could either, one, put your hands up, Two, move or punch back. Like, I don't know. It, it was a weird one. Alessio landed 43 total and 39 significant strikes. He was 0 for on takedowns, 0 for 4. Compared to Roman's 66 total and 59 significant strikes with a knockdown of his own. Alessio now is on a two-fight losing streak. He finishes his career 1-5 in his last six fights and 2-5 and in the UFC. While Roman ends his two-fight losing streak and is now one and two in the UFC. Well, now that Alessio's retired, you know, we won't see him back in the octagon. But how about Kopilov versus Cody Brundage? I think that makes sense uh, uh, for Kopilov's next bout. And then we have the co-main. I love me some fucking Bobby Knuckles, man. But we had Robert Whitaker with the unanimous decision over Marvin Vittori. And this fight played out really about the way you'd expect. I mean, Bobby Knuckles is a tough bitch. He was a better boxer, a better kickboxer. He, you know, he's, he's a better wrestler. He outclassed a very good Marvin Vittori, who's a good wrestler. You know, he's durable. He's strong. He's aggressive. He outclassed him everywhere. Marvin did showcase his toughness and willingness to dig deep as he always does. See Italian in him. But Whitaker was just too strong. He was too fast. His IQ was higher. He's too skilled. And there's just clearly levels between Izzy, the number one contender, contender Robert Whitaker, and the rest of that class. Vittori is 28. He's about to turn 29. So he isn't even in his fighting prime yet. So I wouldn't say his days of a championship run are over. I mean, he could wait for Izzy and Robert to move out. Both have considered going up. He could just keep, stay the gatekeeper. It's going to be interesting to see what happens here. But statistically, I mean, he's got a lot of room to improve, right? That We know that much. Statistically, Robert landed 74 total and significant strikes with the takedown. Compared to Marvin's 38 total and 33 significant strikes, and he was 0 for 1 on takedowns. Now, Robert starts a new winning streak and is in the number one contender spot still, while Marvin starts a new losing streak and lose, moves down one spot to number three. They both only have two losses in a long time, and those two losses are Israel Adesanya. Well, what's next? I think for Robert. If he does stay in middleweight, Paula Costa is really the only guy he hasn't fought, and that makes sense. I know that probably doesn't excite him too much. It's not up, you know, doesn't really bring you that much closer to a title fight, but he's running out of options in this weight class. Um, 
you know, things could get interesting if Pieta beats Israel Adesanya, but I'm not betting on that. Um, you know, he could move up. Uh, there is rumors that Australia is going to host a card Q1 of next year. If that's the case, uh, I'm sure he'll still stay in this weight class, but it'll be interesting. And for Marvin, I think Jared Cannonier is the only fight to make as they kind of figure out those rankings, and it's honestly shocking that they haven't fought yet. And then the main event, man. Cyril gone with a third-round knockout against Ty Tuavasa, clearly fight of the night here. And Cyril came in as a big favorite. He's the hometown, the first card in Paris. You know, fighting was illegal there not that long ago. And boy, did they show out. I mean, sold-out stadium. The vibe was crazy. They're singing the national anthem during the fight. I mean, it, it was, you know, a scene from a movie. And gain outclassed Ty, man. Uh, he was better everywhere. He was faster, smoother, and more well-rounded as he is against most heavyweights. But Ty impressed me again. Ty has continually moved up his stock. He's beaten guys I didn't think he could beat. And even in this fight, he impressed me, and his stock goes up in my book. The big thought before this fight for me was, can Ty put Cyril Gaon to sleep? He's done this with a bunch of other guys that I wasn't sure about on his winning streak. And the answer came kind of true. I mean, in round two, he knocked Cyril down, which took the air out of the arena. It went silent. But Gon even talked in the MMA hour with Ariel Hawani that it fucked him up. I mean, he got down and quickly recovered, but he said hitting the ground almost woke him up. And he's like, oh, shit, what happened? Well, Ty kept coming as he always does. He was taking a lot of damage trying to get into range, though especially those body kicks, those teep kicks to the ribs and stomach. They've shown photos of Cyril's like foot up under your ribs and in your stomach, man. I think a lot of guys probably would have had a, a TKO finish by body shots, but Ty wasn't going to let that happen. It came out after the fight that Cyril fractured his hand. Uh, Cyril said he's not too sure when it happened, but he fought for a while with the, with the fractured hand. Uh, so the only knock on him for, to me was for him not being able to finish Ty and get in a position where he did get clocked by, by Tuavasa. Uh, but that's no easy feat. Ty is a tough motherfucker. And he ain't going anywhere. Um, you know, he's talked about working on his wrestling. It would have been nice to maybe see some of that to avoid some of the damage. But he said in, coming in, he wanted to get the finish. He wanted to put on a show for his hometown crowd. And oh boy, did he deliver statistically Cyril landed 110 total and significant strikes with a knockdown and was O for take O for on the takedown department. O for one Ty landed 29 total and significant strikes with a knockdown of his own. And Cyril now starts a new winning streak after getting wrestled by Francis Ngannou. Uh, he stays in the number one contention spot. Ty has his five fight winning streak come to an end. And he moves down one spot in the rankings to number four. Cyril's hand injury really makes the, the matchmaking a little interesting because I'm sure he's going to be out for at least six months. If I'm guessing at this point, there still hasn't been, you know, John tweeted about December. There would have to be a fight booked by the end of the month for that to happen. I just don't think that it's going to happen with him and Stipe, sadly. So I think it ends up happening is John Jones versus Francis Ngannou at the beginning of next year, February, January. 
And for Cyril, I could see him recovering and fighting the winner of that fight. And for Ty, I could see Curtis Blades or Stipe Miocic. If Stipe does ever fight again, that might be more of a fight Stipe wants. If not, Curtis Blades is, is ready to rumble. Um, but the idea of Cyril gone, John Jones, are you fucking kidding me? That would be potentially one of the best fights ever in an MMA fan's dream. Cyril has cleaned house in the heavyweight division besides the Nganu fight where Nganu knew he was a better striker than him and was too fast. He had to wrestle him and use his weight to lay on him. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if John wrestled him either, but just the idea of this quickness, the speed, the power and heavyweight of these two motherfuckers going at it. Are you kidding me? We could only dream. It was all a dream. But let's talk UFC 279 Diaz army back in action. Um, we have the prelims on ESPN news, obviously the main card being a pay-per-view and a, a decent fight happening in the prelims that we won't break down. We have number 15th ranked Norma Dumont. She is taking on Danielle Wolf in her UFC debut at 38 years old. Don't ever think it's too late. Danielle Wolf trying to put on a show, but Norma Dumont is no easy feat. I'm sure I'll be taking Norma in that fight. But we're going to kick it off in the prelims back in the desert in Las Vegas. The embeddeds have been fun. We get Jake, the prototype Collier, 33 years old with a 13-7 and record, taking on Chris Beast Boy Barnett, 36 years old with a 22-8 and record. Now, this is going to be an interesting fight as both of these big boys are looking to get back on track, which always creates some fun drama. Um, again, relating to the MMA hour, Robert Whitaker talks about, you know, you lose a fight. The second one, you got a lot of nerves of losing two in a row because sometimes a three in a row could cut cost you your career or it puts you out of like any kind of contention or top rankings. Now, not only is that dramatic enough for these fighters, but it came out this week that in Barnett's last fight, hours before, he had some tough news to deal with with his wife's health, who has since then passed away. Um, you know, he did uh, lose the fight via technical de decision because of an elbow that struck his head. So brutal news. I mean, I'm sure that there's just a lot of feelings for Barnett coming into this fight. And not only that, but he's coming off a loss. You know, this is a huge fight for him as he's one and two in the UFC. And after what he's going to go, what he's gone through, I think he's going to be more motivated than ever. But Jake's in his fighting prime. He's battle tested in this division, and he's no slouch. When we look at it, Jake has come from the RFA, where he was a former middleweight champion. Oops. Um. He's since then moved to the light heavyweight division, wanted to fight bigger. You could tell he's put on a lot of weight. He is now in heavyweight. He is on a one fight losing streak and is one and two in heavyweight since 2020. Five of his 13 wins are via knockout and three of his seven losses are via knockout. So he's knocked out a good bunch and been knocked out a few times as well. He does have a three and a half inch reach advantage and a four and a half leg reach advantage in this fight. While Barnett is a third Don Black Belt in Taekwondo, he is on a one-fight losing streak and is 1-2 and two in the UFC. 17 of his 22 wins are via knockout, and three of his eight losses are via knockout. 
So he's more of a knockout or be knocked out specialist, even more so than Jake. But that is life in heavyweight. Now, Jack, uh, Jake is going to do what he normally does, in my opinion. He's going to look to dirty box. He's going to look to put the smaller uh, Barnett on the cage, take him down, tire him out, empty that stamina tank, and potentially look for a submission. But Chris is a wild card. He always has been. He can catch you with crazy power shots out of nowhere. That's why he does have 17 knockouts. Uh, and it might be like he did against Jan Vellante with the spinning wheel kick. I mean, holy fuck, that was nuts. Um, so I'm excited to see how this plays out. Um, Chris on his on his feet is going to be a danger for Jake anywhere they go. But I think Jake, Jake looks to close in the range, use his bigger frame uh, um, to weigh on uh, Chris and, and, you know, take away those power shots. I am going to take Jake. We are putting him on that parlay. We marking that ish down. And we getting that bread. Moving on. We have Hakeem Mean Dawoodoo, 31 years old with a 13-2-1 record, taking on Julian Juicy J. Arosa, 33 years old with a 27-10 record. Now, this is going to be a fun matchup in the featherweight division. Both fighters on winning streaks and both in their fighting primes. Those are always good stories, right? Guys on winning streaks in their primes, it's like they finally, it's like, all right, bro, we were eventually going to meet, now we're meeting. Or like the Jake Collier fight, guys that are on a slouch, they're fighting for their 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 careers at that point. Always makes for good fights. Well, Akeem has a Muay Thai background and kickboxing background. He's on a one-fight winning streak. Seven of his 13 wins are via knockout, and he is 1-1 one one since 2020. Julian trains out of Extreme Couture. He is a Seattle Yakima local, 206, what up? He's on a two-fight winning streak. He is 5-1 and one in his last six fights and 6-5 and five in the UFC. He was in the UFC in March of 2016, then went back to King of the Cage and Cage Sport before coming back to the UFC. So he's, he's kind of been a little bit everywhere. He is a former featherweight and lightweight Cage Sport champion. He was a two-time featherweight and three-time lightweight. He is also a prime fighting featherweight champion. So he's he's been a champion of a bunch of promotions in and out of the uh, UFC. 12 of his 27 wins are via submission and 11 of them are uh, by knockout. So 20 of his 23 of his 27 wins are via finish and five of his nine losses are via knockout. Now, Arosa is always active. He's no joke. He's no easy guy to fight. He's got a lot of experience. But Hakeem is coming off a very nice win against Michael Terzano earlier this year. And, um, you know, he hasn't been as active. I believe DeWudo is more of a talented striker, but he needs to be careful with uh, Arosa's BJJ. I've gone back and forth in this fight, but I think Hakeem is just too talented. I think he's taken that time off to improve his craft. And I do believe he's going to be tested. I do believe he's going to go uh, have to dig deep here. I could see a late knockout or, or potentially this going to decision, but I'm hey, I'm taking Hakeem. I'm putting him on my parlay. We marking that ish down, and we getting that bread. Moving on to the main card, we got Johnny Walker, 30 years old with an 18 and seven record and the number 13 next to his name, taking on Jan the Hulk Kutalaba, 28 years old with a 16 seven and one record. 
Now, this fight is going to set the stage for the main card. Vegas is going to be crazy, and I expect this to be even crazier of a fight. It's going to be a banger. Johnny Walker cannot afford another loss. He was once a big-time prospect who has now lost four of his last five, while Kutalaba can't afford another loss either, uh, but he is only 28 years old, so not even in his fighting prime yet. Johnny is a brown belt in BJJ. He is a Dana White Contender Series alum. He is on, or he is five and four in the UFC. Fifteen of his eighteen wins are via knockout. Four of his seven losses are also via knockout. He does have a seven-inch reach advantage and a three and a half-inch leg reach advantage in this fight. Now, Jan has a background in sambo, judo, kickboxing, and Greco-Roman wrestling, which is some nasty skills to come into with. He trains out of the MMA factory. He won the 2012 European Combat Sambo Championship. And he is uh, 12 of his 16 wins are via knockout. He is on a one-fight winning streak. He is 1-1-1 one, one, and one in his last three fights. And this one's really 50-50 for me. Johnny's the underdog. He's the dog in this fight. Uh, but I think he's been through a lot. I think he's dialed in. He looks to be dialed in. While I picked this fight, it came out later on the embedded. He was talking about CBD ruining his life, which is super dramatic and out of control. I'm sure he was taking marijuana, THC, whatever you want to call it, which can, right, put you in certain positions where maybe you're a little lazy, maybe you're a little groggy, you don't want to do things. But just to blame it, like CBD ruins your life, like, come on, man. So I'm a little worried about that. Uh, it made me even, you know, less confident. But I do think Johnny's going to use his length. I think this fight... He's going to outpoint uh, Jan, kind of like a, kind of like a Izzy would do. I think he's going to look to avoid the takedowns and the bully fighting that Kutalaba, the Hulk's going to bring. And I think he's going to find a path to victory and avoid the big shots and takedowns. I am taking Johnny Walker. I'm going to avoid him on my parlays if possible. Then we have Irene Aldana. 34 years old with a 13 and 6 record and the number 4 next to her name taking on Macy Chiasin 31 years old with a 9 and 2 record and the number 10 next to her name. Now this is a big time fight right now for the women's bantamweight division, Macy going down. I think it's it's crazy to think that Macy is only 31 years old. I feel like she's been around forever. Aldana, she carries some serious power. So it's going to be her striking versus Macy's dog, cardio tank, and grappling. Irene is an Invicta alum. She has the second best takedown defense in UFC history at 93.5%. She is on a one-fight winning streak. Seven of her 13 wins are via knockout. She has definitely had a problem with getting fights officially booked, people showing up. She's had her own issues making weight. While Macy is on a one-fight winning streak, she is an Invicta and Ultimate Fighter alum. She has a three-and-a-half-inch reach advantage and a three-and-a-half-inch leg reach advantage. And I think this fight's going to be a back-and-forth affair. Aldana hasn't been very active, but I am taking Aldana with her striking and the takedown defense. I am avoiding this on a parlay if necessary. And this fight's a big reason why I do my parlays on Friday after weigh-ins. Macy coming down. Irene's already got weight issues. This could be a weight cut issue. I wouldn't expect this bout to happen until they step into the octagon on Saturday.
Moving on. We got Kevin Trailblazer Holland, 29 years old with a 23 and 7 record, taking on Daniel D-Rod Rodriguez, 35 years old with a 16 and 2 record. Now Holland, he's been all over the map, man. This is another catchweight bout. He's, you know, he's he's protecting the streets. He's fighting at whatever weight he can get. Um, but I believe Daniel is really going to make Holland work in this fight. I think Kevin is faster. I think he is a better striker. But I'd expect Rodriguez to trial and wrestle him, even though that's not a strong suit because that's been the path to victory for most people. Kevin, he's a second-degree black belt in Kung Fu and a black belt in BJJ. He is a Dana White Contender Series Bellator and King of the Cage alum. He is tied for the most wins in a calendar year with five. He has the most bouts in a 12-month period in the UFC with seven. He was the 2020 Male Fighter of the Year and Breakthrough Fighter of the Year. He is on a two-fight winning streak. He is 2-2-1 two, two, in his last five fights. And 13 of his 23 wins are via knockout and six via submission. So 19 of his 23 fights via finish. Oh, yeah. And he has a seven-inch reach advantage. Now, Daniel is a southpaw fighter. He trains at a syndicate MMA. He is on a three-fight winning streak, all of which are in 2021. He is 6-1 and one in the UFC. Eight of his 16 wins are via knockout. He is a Dana White Contender Series, Bellator, and King of the Cage alum himself. And boy, am I excited. I mean, Kevin Holland is a fucking real-life character out of a video game. Big Mouth just isn't a superhero on the streets and saving people from crime, but he is also a very good UFC fighter, and I think he's going to remind everyone of this um, on, on Saturday night. I'm taking Big Mouth. I'm putting him on that parlay. We marking that ish down, and we getting that bread. Moving on, the co-main event of the evening. The last two fights on this card are very big Vegas favorites and underdogs. And it's two guys that are potentially on the very last legs of their career. We got Lee, the leech, Jing Liang, 34-year-old fighter with a 19-7 and record and the number 14 next to his name. Taking on Tony El Kukui, or I always have a struggle reading it. I know in my brain. Uh, Kukui. No, it's not Kukui. Whatever. Tony Ferguson, 38 years old with a 26-7 and record and the number 11 next to his name. For me, Tony definitely surprised me in his last fight. He took the L, but he was fight fighting Iron Mike in his prime and still showed some fight. I mean... I believe that the power in this weight class isn't going to be good for him moving back up. But I do believe his chin is gone, so that's a problem. But I think this could be an impressive showing for Tony the first few rounds. But it could be the last fight for Tony if it does go the way I think it will. Tony is talking like Nate. He wants to fight for a long time. He wants to be champ, champ, all these things. Um, but I just don't see it. You know, As a fan, um, El Kakui... I love him. I would love to see Tony fight a lot of times. Those dirty bows. I just, sometimes your chin, the health, it goes away and you can't control it. We've seen the Chuck Liddells and, and come and go. Now, Lee, he's 
He trains out of Sanford MMA. He is a black belt in BJJ. He is on a one-fight winning streak. He is 2-1 in the UFC. 10 of his 19 wins are via knockout. He is a former Legend FC champion. And two of his last three fights have been Performance of the Night Awards. He is tied for the second most knockouts in UFC welterweight division history with eight. While Tony, he's an orthodox fighter. I mean, El Kikui is fucking crazy. He does all kinds of crazy shit, jumping around. He's throwing football in the octagon. You know, we all know the Tony Ferguson of old. He has a black belt in 10th Planet Jiu-Jitsu. He has a wrestling background, winning the 2006 National Championship Wrestling Association title at Muscogun Community College. He is an Ultimate Fighter alum and champion, Tough 13. He is on a four-fight losing streak. He hasn't won since June of 2019. 12 of his 25 wins are via knockout and 8 via submission, but 20 of his 25 fights are via finish. He is a former interim lightweight champion. He has the most consecutive wins in lightweight history at 12. He had the 2018 fight of the year against Anthony Pettis, and he does have a 5-inch reach advantage here. I would like to think if Tony had a path to victory, it would involve wrestling Lee looking for a submission. I don't think that's what Tony's game plan is going to be, though. I think it's going to be a striking battle where Lee comes out victorious. Like I said, I think Tony can impress through the first few rounds until he takes too much damage like he did against Chandler. But I have major concerns about his durability and his chin. For that reason, I'm taking Lee Jingliang. I'm putting him on my parlay. We marking that ish down, and we getting that bread. Then the main event. I remember when the whole scandal with uh, Full Send happened, or the Pivot podcast, being in the, the den, the room, the boardroom, whatever you want to call it, and seeing all the hypothetical fights. And when this one came out, I was like, there's no fucking way. Especially because it was supposed to be at the Vegas card that I went to on my Dirty 30. But here we are, Kamzat Boris Chemaev, 28 years old, with an undefeated 11-0 record and the number three next to his name, taking on Nate Diaz, 37 years old, with a 21-13 record. The odds really do tell the story here. Chemaev is minus 1,000, but for a real UFC fan, the specifics behind this fight are really ridiculous. I mean, it's in all the... The embedded, it's in the hype up, it's everywhere. Nate supposedly had asked for fights a long time ago because he's been inactive for a while. It's been a contract negotiation issue with the UFC. The UFC wanted him to stay. He doesn't want to stay. Let's see. He has not fought since he fought Leon Edwards in summer of last year. And then it was a year and a half before that when he fought Jorge Masvidal. So it's been a battle. He supposedly asked for fights against some high-level competitors such as Dustin Poirier, Michael Chandler, and Tony Ferguson. And they didn't let him have that. I think they gave Nate a uh, resolution of, you sign a contract, we'll give you those fights. If you don't, we're giving you Chemayev. If Nate can ma make it past the first two rounds, though, this shit can get really interesting. We all know that. He could try and gas out Kamzat in, a, the, in, in Kamzat's first five-round event. 
We did see that there is evidence. Chemayev said he's willing to fight for two hours, and I'm sure he is. But he was slowing down in, in his last fight, round, round three against Gilbert, although the pace was fucking insane. If Nate did what Leon Edwards did to Kamaru and what he did against Leon Edwards, I mean, he almost knocked out Leon at the end of that fight. That would be some next-level fuckery, and the UFC world would have their minds blown. Nate Diaz and Mike Drop walked out that bitch smoking a J, I'm sure of it. But since Nate wanted out, this is what he gets. This is the this is Dana's way to tell Nate to suck it. I'm not going to boost your stock on your way out so you can come out all high and mighty and make as much money outside of my promotion. Plus, he gives the ability for Nate's fans to fall in love with Chemayev to see what Chemayev can do. I do think Kamzad is probably going to walk through Nate like he did Li Jingliang. But the beauty of the UFC is you never fucking know you have to watch a la Leon Edwards. Pound for pound, headshot, dead. But Kamzat said he could have made the Burns fight end early in, the, in this you know presser this week. He said he wanted to make it good for the fans. I don't believe there's validity to that. But if there is, hopefully he continues that and makes us a fucking fan favorite five round fight. Now let's break down the actual fighters. Nate is a southpaw fighter. He has a third-degree black belt in BJJ. He is a Strikeforce WEC and Ultimate Fighter alum. He is on a two-fight losing streak and is 2-3 and three since 2015. He obviously battled marijuana suspensions before it was legal in the UFC that took away a lot of his prime. He is the tough five winner. He is tied with Jim Miller for the most submission wins in UFC lightweight history at seven. He's also tied for the most fight of the night bonuses in UFC history with nine. He was a 2011 all violence team, the 2016 submission of the year against Conor McGregor and 11 of his 20 wins are via submission. Now Kamzat has a wrestling background. He trains at an all-star training center. He has a purple belt in BJJ. He was the 2016 Swedish wrestling champion. He's 5-0 in the UFC and undefeated professionally. Six of his 11 wins are via knockout and four via submission. So 10 of his 11 fights haven't gone to decision. I can't pick Nate here, though, to be honest. I think this will probably be a minute fight. I think Kamzat comes out aggressive. He wants the title shot. But I'm going to tune in. I hope for chaos. For Nate Diaz's sake, let's fucking go. But I'm not going to put this on a parlay. It's minus 1,000. The odds Nate does knock him out at the fifth round or choke him out. I ain't putting money on it. But I am happy UFC is back in action. I'm excited to go MMA only, change it up a little bit, get some new foundations going. But after this weekend, we get another fight night back in Vegas at the Apex. I know we're all jazzed about that. Uh, but it's a 4 p.m. Pacific main card start headline by Song Yadong and Corey Sanhagen. In my mind, it's a deep fight night card, so I'm definitely stoked about it. All right, all right, all right. For the last time in business and buckets history, we're going to talk the rest of sports. I'm going to talk NFL. I'm going to talk my season prediction and award winners. We're going to talk college football. We're going to recap week one, give you some thoughts on my top 25. 
where I see their seasons panning out. I'm pretty good at this prediction shit, so you better tune in. Plus, I'm going to talk about baseball, the week, the week preview, plus what I see the playoffs shaking out, and we're going to provide myself some accountability from my preseason predictions before we wrap up some other things like the U.S. Open and basketball. And episode 99, the last full sports episode, Let's have some fun with some NFL. News around the league. Tonight is Thursday. Football's back. We get Rams, Bills. I'm playing softball. I'm a little bummed. But I'll be watching my phone. I'll be checking fantasy. I'll even give you guys a little preview to my fantasy squad here. See what we got. All right. I am a commissioner of a 12-team league with a quarter-point PPR. Pretty standard scoring. I do have some big play bonuses for, like, you know, running back gets 200 yards. They get 100 yards, point, 202. Same with receiver. 40-plus yard touchdowns, things like that. I have Aaron Rodgers as my quarterback. We have three receivers. I have Devontae Adams, DK Metcalf, and Devonta Smith. My running backs are Najee Harris and Cam Akers, who's playing tonight. My flex is Eli Mitchell of the Niners. My tight ends are Irv Smith Jr. and Pat Fryermuth. I have Brees Hall on my bench for running back as well as Raheem Mostert of the Dolphins. I have receivers Chris Olave, who I think is going to have a good year. Kenny Galladay on the bench, as well as DeAndre Hopkins, although he's suspended. And Jamison Williams stashed on IR. My kicker is Chris Boswell, and my defense is the Broncos. So excited for fantasy. I'm actually in three leagues. I usually only do two. The league I commission, plus I do a fun league that's free. Been doing it for a long time because it has a bunch of defensive players. I like being able to to draft a defensive squad. Um, my defensive players in this league are TJ Watt, Logan Wilson, let's go, Wyo, Isaiah Simmons, De uh, Devondre Campbell, Jalen Ramsey playing tonight. Cam Hayward, Brian Burns, Kenny Moore, and Minka Fitzpatrick. And I'm doing a third this year on Sleeper. Sleeper seems fun. I'm moving to Arizona. You could do your own bets and everything right from the app. Over-unders, pick-em parlays, you name it. Plus fantasy. It's very smooth. I like the interface. And I'm testing it out because if I like it, I might move my league to Sleeper next year. But enough about that. We got some headlines. We got Ryan Kerrigan rejoining the commanders. Not as a player, though. He's retired as an assistant D-line coach. I love to see it. I think Ryan Kerrigan is highly underrated for most casual fans. What a stud he was. He just played for Washington, which was, you know, an 8-8 eight eight or worse team every year. Got to hydrate. Russell Wilson getting paid. He signs a five-year, $245 million extension with a, a buck 65 guaranteed. Welcome to Denver. Lots of uh, news coming out about the issues in Seattle. Supposedly an a, a MVP race against Lamar Jackson. Pete Carroll sat him down, didn't let him pass the ball or boost his stats in a game that they were blowing a team out. Plus there was beef of the team interested in, I believe, Josh Allen and Pat Mahomes. Uh, and he didn't take that uh, very lightly. So that's a lot of the rift. 
Um, obviously, some players um, upset with Russell in the locker room, the way he was acting, things of that nature. I was a huge Russell Wilson advocate and still am to this day, even after hearing that. You know, a lot of stuff can be swayed a certain way. Quarterbacks probably always have some hesitancy. We could talk every mainstream quarterback, the issues they've had, Tom Brady, um, let's see, Matt Stafford, um, Aaron Rodgers, ton of it. They're talented. They work hard. I do think they have the team's best interest in mind, um, but it's hard when they get paid more and they have more spotlight. Russell Wilson was a college stud in Wisconsin who didn't have a high draft report, right? He wasn't thought highly of. He came in. He worked hard. He proved himself. I think he still works hard. I think he's still gritty. I think he's going to have an awesome season with the Denver Broncos. And I can't wait for him to come into Seattle and whoop some Seahawk ass on Monday Night Football this week. I don't really know if there's a lot of, you know, like stock into this, but the Titans did sign Josh Gordon to their practice squad after he was released. They also have Pro Bowl pass rusher Harold Landry tearing his ACL brutal for their defense. The Eagles did claim Trey Sermon, which I can't believe that the uh, 49ers cut him. The Texans claimed OJ Howard, another, you know, primetime prospect that hasn't translated. A middle line stud middle linebacker who's had his injury issues. The Giants release Blake Martinez. Royce Freeman reassigned uh, to the Texans. Uh, mostly probably going to be a practice squad. Maybe some, some emergency depth. Another guy I thought would translate to the league that didn't. Cowboys signing Jason Peters to start on the practice squad. Um, they've had some line issues. They're aging. So they decided to add a 40-year-old Jason Peters. Not to talk shit on Jason Peters. He's a stud, perennial pro bowler. But 40 years old, I mean, that's it's got to be brutal. The Browns signed tight end Jesse James to a one-year deal ex-Steeler. The Steelers officially retiring Franco Harris's number 32. Love to see it. I wonder how the great Terry Bradshaw feels about not having his number retired yet. Joe Flacco officially starting for the Jets. J-E-T-S. Jets, Jets, Jets. Until week four. That should be fun. Give it to Brees Hall, baby. Um, Steelers, great uh, Bronco, great receiver. Emmanuel Sanders officially retiring from the NFL. What a career he had. Another stud that the Steelers found out of the draft. And the Bills are loving their tight end, Dawson Knox. They give him a four-year, $53.6 million deal with $31 million guaranteed. And the Rams officially have extended Sean McVay and Les Snead until 2026. They're planning on getting some more rings. Hard Knocks was fun this offseason. I was loving the Detroit Lions coverage. I thought the final episode was fun on Tuesday with Eminem in-house and the final scene with Dan Campbell. You can see how this team's crazy. It's a, it's a bunch of ex-players, right? I'm in sales. My favorite management are people that came from sales in the company that I can relate to and that can speak from existence. I hate getting those external managers that have never sold the product that have no idea what they're talking about besides you know sales one-on-one stuff that they have. I'm not saying they don't know what they're talking about, but it's just different. So the Lions have a bunch of player coaches. They have Deuce Staley, Antoine Randall, some ex-Steelers, a bunch of dudes, some dogs. Dan Campbell's a dog. The 2022 Detroit Lions, you can see he's working. I didn't really like his final answer of 
can and will. I thought he could have got some more pizzazz around it. But I loved the final scene. It was a great way to cut it. And even better, the in-season Hard Knocks is back, as you all know. That'll be tuning in in November. Um, Mid-season fill-in for the, the Cardinals. They'll be having DeAndre Hopkins back. We'll see how they're doing. Lots of pressure. Kyler Murray getting paid for performance as well. Enough of the headlines, though. Let's talk the fun shit, man. Let's talk that fun shit. <clears throat> dun, 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 dun. My 2022-2023 preseason predictions. This is always one of my favorite exercises, to be honest. I've been doing this as a kid in Montana before you had a smartphone, before you could just use your ESP, Yahoo Sports apps. It was ESPN Magazine and SI Magazine. I used to keep my, keep my favorite Sports Illustrated magazine covers. I put them on my wall. I even made an SI logo on my wall. Uh, you know, the Miami Heat Finals, the Steelers uh, defense in 2006, all those sweet covers that I had. It was awesome, right? And uh, I used to always do preseason predictions. I want to say, I mean, here right now I have backlog till 2016. But before I had a MacBook, this was like college, right? And, and college, I, I used to do it. I've always had it st- saved in my iCloud. But I want to say my first year was about 2006. So it's been 16 years I've been doing preseason predictions. And I always used to rank it up to ESPN and Peter King's predictions, and I would keep score of who did better. Um, Peter King's always been a guy I look to. I love me some Colin Cowherd, right? Uh, FCS alum, Eastern Washington. When I wanted to be in – uh, a sports broadcaster. He was always the idol I looked up to. Uh, just a lot of people that, you know, get supply like Adam Shine. Uh, he does Shine on Sports and Sirius Radio. And it's something that I, I always I always get hyped up for, and I always usually deliver on pretty damn good. Um, I've beaten Peter King quite a few times. I used to keep the score. I don't anymore, so I couldn't give you the updated rankings. It's been 16 years. I've at least beat him damn near half that, if not more. So here we go. We're going to kick it off in the AFC North. Black and yellow winning the division, going to the Super Bowl. Kenny Pickett. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I have the Steelers flagged with offensive line issues. All you Yinzers already know. The quarterback situation, what's going to happen. Um, It's a brutal division for Kenny Pickett to come in. That's why he's not starting. I like Mitch Trubisky, but I like him from what I've seen in Buffalo. We have not seen him lead a team. We're about to find out. He's got a lot of weapons and that offensive line, though. They don't give him any time. He's not going to have a, a lot of options. I do have depth issues here. You lose a TJ Watt. You lose, you know, a Najee Harris. Shit goes south really fucking fast. And especially in the cornerback position, they have Akello Weatherspoon, Levi Wallace, a lot of guys that are new and first-time starters that they're banking on. You lose one of those, you're in trouble. Um, I have their injury risk at four. I rank everyone one through five based on age, depth, and concerns or already injured players. So I do think they have a high injury risk coming into the season. With that said... There's no more eight and eight seasons to be had. Mike Tomlin has not suffered a losing season, and I think he keeps that going. I have the Steelers finishing nine and eight in the AFC North. I have them finishing third. 
And second, I have the Baltimore Ravens. I have them flagged with wide receiver issues. Obviously, Rashard Bateman could be a breakout, but he could be a bust. Uh, getting rid of Hollywood Brown, they don't have a lot of depth in receiver and just in their core group as well. I have their injury risk as four as well. I have the Ravens finishing one game better at 10-7 and seven and sneaking in the wild card. Winning the AFC North, I have your Cincinnati Bengals AFC champions of last year. The biggest issue I have with them is depth. I didn't put down offensive line. They got a lot of guys, L. Collins and such, that I think they'll be okay. I have them as a four-flagged risk as well. You lose a Joe Burrow. You'll lose anyone but a receiver, basically. There's going to be issues. And I have them going 12-5. and five. So I got Bengals 12-5, and five, Baltimore Ravens 10-7, and seven, Steelers 9-8, and eight, and the Browns finishing fourth at 7-10. and 10. I have their issues as wide receiver and QB. Obviously, Watson's not coming back for quite some time. And I have their injury risk as two because they're, just, they're not very top-heavy. They are a deep team. And um, without Watson, they don't have a lot of star power anyways. Going to the AFC South, I have your AFC South winners as the Indianapolis Colts at 8-9. and nine. Crazy, huh? 8-9, and nine, I have them tied with the Titans at 8-9, and nine, but they have a tiebreaker. I have them flagged as QB issues, wide receiver issues, and depth issues with an injury risk of four. Matt Ryan's old, Jonathan Taylor, lots of carries, had lots of carries in college, has been hurt in college. That concerns me. Um, that's their main guy. Shaq Leonard having issues with health already. You lose guys like that, you're in big trouble. Michael Pittman. So I have them right flagged as four. Obviously, I don't think too highly of them. Pretty weak division, though. I have the Titans tied at eight and nine. I have the Titans flagged with depth issues, you know, tight end issues. I don't like their tight end uh, depth chart. Line issues as well, and a flagged issue at number four for injuries. I have them at eight and nine, but the Colts with the tiebreaker. Finishing third in the AFC South, I have the Jacksonville Jaguars. I have them at 6-11 and 11 with wide receiver issues, secondary issues, offensive line issues, and depth issues overall. I have them flagged at injury risk of five. You lose James Robinson again. You lose Travis Etienne. You lose Trevor Lawrence. You lose one of the key main players are going to have issues. And then the Texans I have at 2-15. and 15. Tight end, wide receiver, and defense issues. Defense especially, injury risk one because they don't have a ton of star power. In the most interesting division in football in 2022, the AFC West, I have the Chargers coming away at 13-4, tied with the Chiefs at 13-4, but I have the Chargers with the tiebreaker. I literally have no nothing flagged in their... Um, positional groups as a as like a flag like an issue i love the los angeles chargers roster justin herbert stud getting better i mean what is this i can't remember is this second or third year in the league uh, uh, uh. his this will be his third year in the league he is 24 years old they have a good running back depth, right? They, they drafted Isaiah Spiller. I like Eckler. They still have Kelly and Sonny Michelle. I like the receivers. I think Palmer's going to come on. You lose a Palmer. You still got a Jalen Guyton. Um, they have Gerald Everett. You lose him. You got Donald Darnell Palmer, uh, Parham Jr., who'd already played. 
Their line looks good. Rashawn Slater, Matt Filer, Corey Lindsley, Zion Johnson, Trey Pipkins. Uh, he's a great addition. They have some depth there. Defensively, I mean, we're talking J.C. Jackson. He's not going to start the season. But J.C. Jackson, Asante Samuel Jeweler, Bryce Callahan, who will probably start with J.C. Jackson being out. Derwin fucking James, Nasir Adderley, Khalil Mack, Joey Bosa, Kyle Van Noy, Sebastian Joseph Day, Austin Johnson, Jerry Tillery. I mean, this team, I do not see a lot of weak spots in there to note, that is. Um, I do have them at an injury risk of only two because of depth. Probably should be higher because if Herbert goes down, they are very fucked. Um, but I'm just thinking as the unit as a whole. The Chiefs tied at 13-4, and four, losing the tiebreaker. I have a secondary issues, right? They released some guys from last year. Depth issues and defense issues and an injury risk of number four. But clearly, I didn't think that would make too much of a difference. Um, I have third in the AFC West. Your Denver Broncos, also a wild card team. I have flags of depth and line issues. They are a four risk in injury, and I have them at 11 and six. And then bottom of the AFC West, I have your Las Vegas Raiders. Secondary issues, defensive issues, and offensive line issues. I have them a four injury risk, and I have them finishing 10 and seven. Lastly, in the AFC East, I have your AFC Buffalo Bill winners. The only thing I have flagged for the Bills is running backs. I have them at a one issue of injury and finishing 13 and four. Second in the AFC East, I have the Miami Dolphins at nine and eight with line issues and depth issues and a five injury risk. Lots of already, you know, flagged injured players there, but I have them finishing nine and eight. I think Tua comes on this year. Third in the division, I have your New England Patriots with depth and cornerback issues with a two injury risk at, again, six and 11. And last in the AFC East at 4-13, and 13, I have your J-E-T-S, Jets, Jets, Jets. Quarterback and depth issues with the three injury risk. I mean, Flacco starting the year, that's a train wreck, let alone um, them trying to get Wilson back into the mix. In the NFC North, I have the NFC North being won by the Minnesota Vikings. Shocker, not for me. I have them flagged with secondary and depth issues and a four injury risk, but I like them this year. 13 and four, new coaching, new personnel, new culture. I think that's what they needed. Second in the division, not far behind your Green Bay Packers, Mr. Rogers. I have wide receiver. They're none proven depth issues, age issues are an older team, five injury risk. So I have them at 12 and five. Third in the NFC North, I have your hard knocks fantasy team. Uh, the Detroit Lions flagged with quarter, quarterback, not cornerback, quarterback and defensive issues, three injury risk. I do have them at six and 11. And last in the NFC North, Justin Fields led Bears. Their roster has some issues, lineman issues, receiver issues, defensive issues, and depth issues. I also have them with a five injury risk finishing at four and 13. In the NFC South, I have the Tampa Bay Buccaneers once again leading the NFC South at 11-6. and six. I think they have age and depth issues. They're at a four-injury risk. Second in the NFC South, I have the New Orleans Saints at 10-7. and seven. I have line and depth issues for the Saints and a three-injury risk. Behind the Saints, I have the Carolina Panthers, Baker Mayfield Panthers at 8-9, just shy of 500. Linemen and tight end issues. 
Um, I have them at an injury risk of two overall. And lastly, I have the Falcons at four and 13 with a lot of issues. Depth, lineman, running back, receiver, all offense, pass rush, three injury risk. Once again, them finishing four and 13. In the NFC West, I have the Rams winning the division again at 12 and five with a tie break. Actually, let me confirm this. Yes. 12 and five with the tiebreaker over the 49ers. Their only issue for me is depth. They are a four injury risk. And the Niners at 12 and five with a secondary and depth issues and a four injury risk as well. Third, I have the Cardinals at six and 11. Defensive issues, age issues, lineman issues, and secondary issues with the three injury risk. And your Seattle Seahawks at three and 14. Quarterback, lineman, secondary, and defensive issues with the three injury risk. Lastly, the dumpster fire NFC East. I have won by the Eagles via tiebreaker with quarterback and depth issues at 10 and 7. Also at 10 and 7, I have the Dallas Cowboys with age and depth issues and a five injury risk. And in third, I have the New York football Giants at 5 and 12. Tight end, quarterback, and defensive issues with the four injury risk. And Washington at 4-13, and 13, last in the NFC East with depth and defensive issues. They just had the uh, bad news about Chase Young re-aggravating his knee. I have them at a five injury risk as well. Eagles-Cowboys is a tough one for me, how that would play out in the division. I think a lot of it has to come with scheduling. The NFC West, I'm high on the Rams and Niners. I think the Niners might have both quarterbacks play, but their roster is good enough. I know the Rams have a tough schedule, but that team is too talented. They're built to win. The Saints sneak in in the playoffs. I'm a little surprised, but um, they have the personnel to do it. Tom Brady's old as shit, but he keeps winning. Again, I'm high on the Vikings, the whole AFC West. I think the Ravens find a way. So in the playoffs, that would put our wild call wild card round in the AFC. The second-ranked Bills hosting the seventh-ranked Ravens. I would have the Bills advancing pretty easily in that matchup. You would have the third-ranked Bengals taking on the sixth-ranked Broncos. What a fucking fun game that would be. I went back and forth on this a few times, but I have the Bengals advancing. And then the fourth-ranked Colts taking on the fifth-ranked Chiefs. I have the Chiefs advancing, which would put the AFC divisional matchups as Chargers-Chiefs, little AFC West matchup, and Bills versus Bengals. What a fun two games that would be. And the NFC wild card, I have the second-ranked Rams beating the seventh-ranked Saints. This would be an ugly game. The big thing for the Rams is avoiding injuries throughout the year and a tough schedule, let alone this game with a good defense. I have the third-ranked Bucks hosting the sixth-ranked 49ers, which is crazy. Due to tiebreakers, the Niners fall to six at 12 and five, just like the Chiefs do at five ranked or at 13 and four. I have the Bucks beating the or excuse me, yes, the 49ers defeating the Bucks. I think they run the ball well, play good defense. The Bucks have injury issues throughout the year. They may be missing someone like Chris Godwin or something in this matchup. And then I have the fourth-ranked Eagles hosting the fifth-ranked Packers. But the Packers, due to Aaron Rodgers' greatness and their defense getting the job done, I am not a huge Jalen Hurts believer. 
So that would give us number one ranked Vikings hosting the Niners and the Rams hosting the Packers. I have Chargers overtaking the Chiefs and Bills overtaking the Bengals. So your AFC championship, Bills, Chargers in LA. And then I have the Vikings beating the Niners and the Rams beating the Packers. So your Minnesota Vikings hosting the Rams in the NFC. I have Chargers and Rams winning for the Battle of LA. What a Super Bowl that would be. All these teams, very good rosters. I have the Los Angeles Chargers led by Justin Herbert winning this year's Super Bowl. Come at me with it. Awards. I have Rookie of the Year, Chris Olave. Again, I am high on him. I think he has a good season. I don't think we see a lot of Michael Thomas. If so, it's more allowing the field to be more open for Olave. Um, plus, Jameis likes to throw it deep. Olave would likes to catch it deep. Due to an amazing season playing the toughest division in football and winning the Super Bowl, I have your MVP as Justin Herbert. I have your Defensive Player of the Year as Micah Parsons. Your Offensive Player of the Year as Justin Jefferson. I think the Jet is about to break out once again. I have Coach of the Year as the Chargers coach, Brandon Staley. I have Comeback Player of the Year as Christian McCaffrey. I think he's going to eat. I am a little concerned about him getting re-injured. I have your Fantasy MVP as Christian McCaffrey. Good luck to all those that had top two picks in fantasy. I had ninth and 10th in my leagues. Not excited about it. And then fantasy sleepers. I have Elijah Mitchell of the Niners and Juju Smith-Schuster of the Chiefs. I think him and Pat Mahomes are going to have some fun together. But I am fucking hyped up for football. Those are your predictions. We got some football tonight, ladies and gents. Let's talk college football. Officially, the college football playoffs will be expanding to 12 teams after 2026. Much like the conference expansions, I know that other teams would like to get to the conferences quicker. I could see this happening quicker. I wish it would, but I am excited for this opportunity as it'll be super conferences. I like the playoff format idea. And then the small teams that aren't in the big conferences have a chance. That, you know, When they get whooped, they can't say we were the best UCF, a la UCF. Dabo Sweeney signing a 10-year, $115 million ex extension for the Clemson Tigers. We saw all the other big-name coaches get extended. It was only due time. Especially with that NIL, you know, schools making money. And Pat McAfee joining College Game Day every Saturday. The show that he was on, I loved it. He's a character. He is made for television. He will be doing his podcast and doing College Game Day. He is breaking barriers for everyone, including myself. You fucking love to see it. Let's keep going. Well, let's talk week one. Week one had some fucking action. I put my parlay with UFC mixed in with college football. I lost one on the Charles Jordan fight, and I lost my other parlay because of the Utah game. I should have bet Utah plus the spread. I did not. You live and you learn after week one. College football started on Thursday with an impressive performance by Oklahoma State, the 12th ranked team in the country. I'm an Oklahoma fan, boomer sooner, so obviously I pay attention to Big 12. And it's all about Spencer Sanders. If you ask me, he was 28 of 41, 406 yards, four tutties, 
He also ran 11 times for 57 yards and two more tutties. And then Oklahoma State was led by Braden Johnson with six catches, a buck 33 and two tutties. Oklahoma State beat Central Michigan 58-44, but it wasn't a blowout like you would expect with those numbers. The game that I had my eye on Thursday was Pittsburgh beating West Virginia in the backyard brawl. This game had everything, back and forth, drama, plays, and you had the transfer story. Welcome to the new college football. I think college football is going to be ruined by the NIL and transfer portals. I am a Montana Grizz and Wyoming um, football fan at heart. That's where I'm from. Those are the teams I grew up with. I am an Oklahoma fan due to the fact that Wyoming and the Grizz, the Grizz can't even play in a championship or bowl games. Wyoming never would, probably. Um, They do play some bowl games like the Potato Bowl and the Vegas Bowl if they have a good season. But uh, they weren't going to win a ship, so that's why I like Oklahoma. Well, now Wyoming is going to be a braiding grounds, which they already were last year, of finding talent, developing talent like Xavier um, Valade, who now is the running back for Arizona State, and many others who transferred to go to the big schools now that they've gotten their, their wills under them. They make money. You can't blame them, but it's going to ruin the culture. The guys coming in as freshmen, leaving as seniors, making it one last hurrah. Insert JT Daniels to West Virginia. He was 23 of 40, 214, two touchdowns and a pick. Insert Kedon Slovis to Pittsburgh, 16 of 24, 308 yards and a touchdown. He outdid JT Daniels. Both teams ran the ball fairly well. And, um, Really, West Virginia was led by Bryce Ford Wheaton. Nine catches, 97 yards, two touchdowns. That was a blast. Um, on nothing, ha- Western Michigan got beat by Michigan State, fifth, uh, 35-13. Nothing very interesting for me there. On Saturday, Bama rolled Utah State 55-0. Ohio State beat Notre Dame 21-10. This was a fun game. True freshman, welcome to Notre Dame. Tyler Buckner, you are going to be in the shoe playing the number two ranked team in the country. He did well, 10 of 18, 177 yards. C.J. Stroud, Heisman favorite, 24 of 34, 223 and two touchdowns. Travion Henderson, 15 carries, 91 yards. And Mian Williams, 14 carries, 84 yards and a tutty. Emika Egbuka, Nine yards, 90 yards, and a touchdown. He is going to be a favorite um, potential NFL receiver as well. My friends wanted to watch this game. I wasn't sure. I expected the dogs to roll them. Georgia did 49 to three over the Ducks. Bo Nix is on his last legs 21 to 37, 173, and two interceptions, no touchdowns. Ran the ball eight times for 37 yards. Stetson Bennett, 25 of 31, 368 and two touchdowns. They ran well. They did everything well. They looked like they could repeat. Let's see. The Florida-Utah game. This was another fun game. People are hyped on the potential ceiling of Anthony Richardson. He's 17 of 24, 168. Also runs the ball 11 times for 106 and three tutties. Uh, Cameron Rising, 22 of 32, 216, a touchdown and a pick. He also ran for 91 yards. And Tavion Thomas, 23 carries, 115 and a touchdown. Very good game. Florida looks to be the real deal. They're going to be a sleeper team that was unranked. They look to be legit. Utah, Pac-12, I love that you're ranked seven, but it is not easy to win in in enemy territory, especially against the SEC. Number eighth ranked Michigan and ninth ranked Oklahoma rolls. I barely watched the Oklahoma game, much like I barely watched the Grizz play because they're playing, you know, 
warm-up games. Dylan Gabriel, 15 to 23, 233, and two touchdowns. Eric Gray, 16 carries, 102 yards. That's a, a 6.4 um, average. Good to see Marcus Major getting some carries, 54 yards on seven carries with two tutties. That's a 7.7 average. And your boy Marvin Mims, three, three catches, 81 yards. Baylor looking pretty good, beating Albany 69 to 10. North Carolina State wins on a mix, missed extra point by East Carolina. So it looks to see seem to be like they're pretty overrated. My enemies forever, USC beating Rice 66 to 14. Caleb Williams 19 to 22, 249 and two touchdowns. He also led the team in rushing 68 yards. Jordan Addison, five catches, 54 yards, and two touchdowns. Boo the Trojans. Miami rolled Bethune Cookman 70 to 13. No surprise. Everyone's hyped up on Miami's quarterback, Tyler Van Dyke, 13 to 16, 193 and two touchdowns. Um, Arkansas beat Cincinnati. This was another fun one. I picked Arkansas in my parlay, and it was drama. KJ Jefferson, 18 to 26, 223 and three touchdowns. He also ran for 62 and a touchdown. Raheem Sanders. 20 carries, 117, and, a, and no touchdowns. Um, Houston beating UTSA in overtime. The fact that Houston had the chance, I cannot believe it. In the fourth quarter, it, it came down to the wire. Houston scored 17 in the fourth to come back. Then they outscore them on three overtimes. Um, Clayton Kuhn, Toon, 22 of 32, 206 and three touchdowns. Ran it 15 times for 51 in the touchdowns. The Roadrunners were a surprise top 25 ranked team last year. They battled. They're looking to be good again. BYU beats South Florida 50 to 21. They have a huge matchup this week. Week one was fun, though. Football is back. Lots of close games. I really enjoyed a, a game that didn't um, feature top 25 teams. An Appalachian State versus North Carolina. This game was fucking egregious to be honest um i think app state scored 40 something points in the fourth quarter still ended up losing that was a lot of fun uh wyoming had lost to illinois um week one and they got a win this week a very hard fought battle in overtime so it was good to see wyoming get a win florida state beat lsu that was a good shocker on sunday i did not watch the game but that was a good one Michael Penix Jr. looking good for the Huskies here in Seattle. It'll be interesting to see how that team plays out. What else was going on? Coastal Carolina beating Army 38-28. I like the old FCS teams doing work. Yeah, Wyoming beat uh, Tulsa 40-37. They lost a lot of good offensive players, but their new quarterback, Andrew Peasley, 20-30, 256, and two touchdowns. Led the team in running with 45 yards. Their quarterback is now the quarterback for Montana State, I believe. Yeah, so Appalachian State did score 40 in the fourth. They lost 63-61. to They went for two, which you love to see it to win the game. They didn't get it win overtime. Didn't get a two-point conversion to lose the game. I watched this game more than I like to admit. Iowa beating South Dakota State 7-3. to How about those Jackrabbits, though? Some legit defense going to be a problem in the FCS. And in the FCS, there wasn't a ton. 
in week one is it's usually them getting blown out by FBS teams. But the Grizz, they still have their quarterback from last year in a walking boot. I don't know if that's why he's not the starter or if the San Diego State transfer has won the job. I'm, I'm very curious to see how that plays out. I think the San Diego State transfer is going to end up be the, being the guy. But he showed out. Let's see if I can find it here. So many games. While I while that pulls up, Montana State forty to seventeen. Uh, Tommy Malott ended up being the starting quarterback for the uh, Bobcats. Eleven to nineteen, one eighty two, and two touchdowns. The local boy, Sean Chambers, the Wyoming transfer, did get in. Was zero for two. Uh, good to see it. You transferred to Wyoming to go to Montana State. You can't even win the head the head job. Sucks to suck. Where the hell are the Grizzlies? Come on. Right here. 47 to 0. Go Grizz, go. I was watching on ESPN Plus. They didn't have audio pretty much the whole game. But Lucas Johnson, 15 to 24, 208 and four touchdowns. Ran the ball seven times for six, 76 yards. Uh, Marcus Knight back in action, six carries, 26 yards and a touchdown. Great to see him. And Mitch Roberts, six catches, 103 yards and two touchdowns. The third ranked team in the country keeps on rolling. Montana stays at third in the ranking. South Dakota State, number two. North Dakota State, number one. Bobcats in fourth. Villanova, six. Sac State, another Big Sky school in seven. Eastern Washington, 12th. Another Big Sky. Weber State, 16. So the Big Sky is always dominating the rankings. Go Grizz, go. Fuck the Cats. Week two. We'll just focus. I guess we'll see what San Diego State and North Dakota State have. So this week, the uh, Bobcats play Moorhead State. Um, I assume that they roll Moorhead State in Bozeman. Montana plays South Dakota. Could be a decent game, a stiffer test. But Montana has a pretty easy schedule for the most part, especially early in the season. They play at Indiana State. Then it's Big Sky play. They play Eastern at home. Bozeman on the road for the Brawl, the Wild. Play at Weber State, at Sac State. So the second half of the season going to be very interesting. The first half, it's going to take a while to get some stiff competition. And then North Dakota State plays North Carolina A&T. I assume that's a blowout. Northern Colorado's playing Wyoming this week. We'll see how that goes. Could be a decent game. Where is North Dakota State? Or South Dakota State plays UC Davis. UC Davis was a pretty good squad last year. That might be an interesting game. But it's going to be fun. I'm going to be tuning into the Grizz a lot. Obviously, ranked third. Bozeman's right there as well. Um, the, the big sky's got a lot of teams in the top 25. In FBS world, we have Texas hosting Bama. Bama favored by 20. I wouldn't be surprised if they cover that. Not as many good a games in week two as there was week one, but Pittsburgh back in action at home. Hosting Tennessee, Tennessee's favored by six. I would like to take the spread on Pittsburgh. Um, I'm rooting for Pitt. I don't know if they could actually win it, though. It's going to be interesting. The SEC is always tough. Oklahoma plays Kent State, another uh, warm-up game. Kent State just played the Huskies. We'll see if they can blank them, unlike the Huskies did. And the two games of the week, you have Florida hosting Kentucky. Florida now ranked 12 after being unranked. 
We'll see what Anthony Richardson versus Will Levis looks like. And then we have BYU hosting ninth-ranked Baylor in Provo, Utah. That's wild that they're hosting a Big 12 game. Uh, but that's going to be a big-time matchup. And when we look at the rankings, let's see what we think. So I think Bama, Georgia, and Ohio State will finish in the top four. I don't think Michigan does. Michigan's fourth-ranked now, up four spots. Um, I just don't like their quarterback situation. You have to have a quarterback. You have to get the job done. When we look at their schedule, they play Ohio State on the road. I think they'll lose that. Um, Penn State, Michigan State, Iowa, those are still going to be tough uh, competitions. Um, but then they're going to have the Big Ten Championship, so we'll see how that plays out. But I doubt they make the playoff. Clemson, I'm, I don't think they're the fifth best ranked team in the country. I, I just didn't see it. Um, they have a pretty easy schedule. North Carolina State didn't look very good. Wake Forest could be a tough game on the road. The big-time game is November 5th at Notre Dame. They, they host Miami as well. I wouldn't be surprised if they lost one of those games. That freshman from Notre Dame looks pretty solid. He's going to gain momentum as the season goes on. Oklahoma is going to be tough. Oklahoma has a decent schedule this year. They play host Baylor at West Virginia, which could be a sneaky team, and host Oklahoma State in the rivalry game. But I would still expect them to win the Big 12. Brett Venable's era begin. Baylor is going to be tough. USC's 10th. They'll probably be right in there. Oklahoma State. Florida might move up. Who's going to get that fourth rank, though? That's going to be interesting. It'll probably come down to Clemson, Notre Dame, maybe the winner of the Big 12, maybe Florida. Let's see who Florida's schedule is. Obviously, they have a tough game this week against Kentucky. They are at Tennessee. They play Eastern Washington midseason. Jesus. Um, they play Georgia. You win that game, you're in. So we'll see. Not saying they're that good. Arkansas is a sneaky good team. Pittsburgh, I like them. Not as high on Wisconsin or Kentucky or BYU. Not too sure about Ole Miss. I like Wake Forest, but I doubt they stay in the top 25. Outside the top 25, I think Penn State and Oregon stay out. Texas stays out. How about the Archie Manning, though? That highlight of his high school fucking football, man. Boo-wee! He's got an arm. But that wraps it up for college football. I mean, it's going to be top-heavy again. I'm just... I'm just not as into college football with this conference shit. It's it's fun now, but it's going to be like four major conferences. Like I said, the teams that I root for are just going to be breeding grounds for fucking Bama and Georgia. So enjoy it. Enjoy it. Go Grizz and Boomer Sooner, baby. Finishing up with some MLB. The Orioles making a playoff push. They signed Jesus Aguilar to the squad. The Phillies don't catch a break as Nick Castellanos heads to the IL. Should be short-term. The Red Sox want to keep Kiki Hernandez around. They give him one year, $10 million. The Yankees place Anthony Rizzo on IL with back pain. The Raider, Rangers DFA Dallas Keuchel. Why he got this many chances, I'm not sure, but he got blown up. I said this last time he got DFA'd, but this should be the last time. The Tigers place Miggy on IL for a bicep strain. Max Scherzer to the IL right before I did my MLB predictions. Then Max Scherzer went to the IL. I'm like, oh, fuck. I think it's probably more protection like Verlander was for the Astros at their age. They're protecting them, wanting to make a run for the playoffs. That's what I hope uh, because of my predictions, not because I'm a Mets fan. 
But this past weekend, the Astros beat my Angels 2-1. to Mike Trout and Shohei Otani, your back-to-back MVP, by the way. They're hot, though. Love to see it. The Rays beat the Yankees 2-1. to The Yankees cannot get the momentum going. Mariners sweep the Guardians 3-0. White Sox beat the Twins 2-1. to White Sox been on a little roll. Just watched them in the day game yesterday in Seattle. They beat the Mariners 2-1. to The Giants swept the Phillies 3-0. Tough break for the Phils. And the Dodgers beating the Padres 2-1. This weekend, we have Orioles hosting the Red Sox. That's going to be interesting. The Yankees hosting the Rays, trying to get revenge. The Astros, Angels, once again, this time in Houston. The Twins and Guardians going in the AL Central. What a battle that is. The Mariners hosting the Braves. I'll be there on Friday. Was supposed to have a friend here and go to all of them this weekend. Kind of happy I'm not. Because I didn't want to be in freaking T-Mobile Park during football Sunday. And then your Padres and Dodgers are going at it. Looking at the standings, the Yanks five ahead of the Rays in the AL East. The Guardians two ahead of the Twins and White Sox. The Astros 11 ahead of the Mariners. And the NL, the Mets are a half a game ahead of the Phils. Or excuse me, a half a game ahead of the Braves. The Cardinals are nine and a half ahead of the Brewers. And in the NL West, the Dodgers ran away with it 19 ahead of the Doyers. I hate ESPN's playoff ranking or playoff wildcard situation. So I'm going to my app again. In the wildcard, the Rays are a game and a half ahead of the Mariners, which is tough. I would love to see the Mariners host a wildcard. I'm putting in for the, the playoff tickets. Uh, I just get refunded, but that you know that's what I'm rooting for. The Blue Jays a half a game behind the Mariners, and the Orioles really the only team with a run at it, four and a half back of the Orioles or of the Blue Jays. The Twins and White Sox seven and a half back, but they're only how much back in the division? Both two games behind the Guardians. It's going to be a battle till the end. In the NL, it's a little bit more clear. Uh, besides the Braves running at the Mets for the division, now Max Scherzer hurt. But they're 10 and a half ahead of the Phillies and Padres who are tied, and they are four ahead of the Brewers. The Brewers have been choking on themselves. But the Padres have a very, very tough schedule the rest of the way. So how does Shane Gillette and Business and Bucket see us shaking out? Well, the way I see it, I have the Astros and Yankees as 1-2 getting buys. The Doyers and Mets 1-2 getting buys. I think the the Mets sneak by. Um, they've been doing well head-to-head against the Braves. They have the pitching. Pitching really makes a big difference come the end of the season and playoff pushes. So your wild cards. I do have the Mariners getting the four spot hosting in Seattle, the longest drought in sports, um, major sports right now. The Mariners ending it and hosting here in Seattle. That's going to be bonkers. I hope I can be a part of that. Uh, the number four Mariners hosting the number five ranked Rays. The Guardians hosting the Blue Jays and the Braves hosting the Phillies 4-5. And the Cardinals hosting the Brewers. I think the Brewers get in and your San Diego Padres missing the playoffs. Why? Well, the fucking schedule is a brutal. Very, very brutal. I mean, let's look at it. Your Padres, the rest of the season, host the Dodgers at Seattle, at the Diamondbacks, who have been pretty decent. 
hosting the Cardinals at the Rockies, hosting the Dodgers, uh, hosting the White Sox and Giants, all playoff competition there. The Brewers are four and six in their last 10. They lost two of three in Colorado, but they're playing the Giants, Reds, at Cardinals, hosting the, the Mets and Yankees. Or the Yankees, yeah, Mets and Yankees. Then they're at the Reds for four, host the Marlins and the Cardinals, and then at Arizona. I just feel like it's a lot easier competition setup, but you know what? We'll see. Either way, I don't think either team beats the Cardinals. So I have the Mariners beating the Rays. I think without Shane McClanahan healthy, the Rays are going to be in trouble. This is going to, you know, it's a best of three. I think it goes three. I like the Mariners' top-heavy pitching better, although Luis Castillo did give up a few runs yesterday. He still looked like a badass, had like seven strikeouts in the first few innings. I think they get schlumped by the Astros, though. I have the Blue Jays beating the Guardians and uh, uh, taking on the Yankees, and I have them beating the Yankees. The Yankees are having pitching woes. Why they got rid of Jordan Montgomery, I have no clue. Their offense is very up and down. I like the Blue Jays' pitching. Manoa has been on another level. In the NL wild card, I have the Braves beating the Phillies, the defending champions. So much youth, so much potential. And I have the Cardinals on their last hurrah. Yachty, Wainwright, Molina. I feel like they get the job done over the Padres or the Brewers, which would then set up Dodgers, Braves, Mets, Cardinals. I have the Dodgers beating the Braves. Or no, I have, yes, the Dodgers beating the Braves. That is going to be... An intense, intense series. But that Dodgers offense, that lineup is stupidly retarded. And I have the Mets beating the Cardinals. Mostly, you have DeGrom, Scherzer, 1-2. That's nasty. So, ALCS, I have Astros, Blue Jays. NLCS, I have Mets, Doyers. I have Mets and Astros moving on. I think the Astros just have so much talent. Jordan Alvarez coming back healthy. Uh, Presley should be back any moment. They just have been built to win on a run after their decade of sucking. The Blue Jays are streaky. Their offense can go cold. Mets, Dodgers, again, Scherzer, DeGrom. As long as they're healthy, I don't think the Dodgers are going to be able to beat them. But I do have your Houston Astros beating your New York Mets and becoming the World Series champions. Wild enough, huh? It's going to be fun. It is going to be fun. Hopefully the Mariners host a wild card because that would be right before I move to the desert. And to wrap up episode 99, Donovan Mitchell traded. We talked about this. The Jazz now have 13 protected or lightly protected draft picks through 2029. Danny Ainge, please come through. I will be patient as long as you provide us a winner. Um, the Jazz signed Colin Sexton to a four-year, $72 million deal. That is a fucking Jazz-friendly deal. If you ask me, I could root for me for some Colin Sexton. Going to be an interesting few weeks with Bigdanovich, Mike Conley potentially leaving, Jordan Clarkson. Let's see what they can get. Tough news for the Celtics as um, Daniel Gallinari tears his ACL, which was the same one he tore in 2013, so they're looking for some bench help. Um, I could see the Jazz giving him Bogdanovich or or um, Jordan Clarkson. <coughs> Montrez Harrell joins the Sixers on a two-year, $5.2 million deal with the player option. 
They add some depth and some experience. And the Mavs extend Maxi Kleba three or thirty-three million. I feel like the Mavericks got worse. They they got maybe make some moves at the trade deadline. They need another superstar. Tim Hardaway Jr. does come back. But as it stands, we talked about 13 protected or lightly protected draft picks through 2029. Basically, the Jazz have traded Rudy Gobert, Donovan Mitchell, and Royce O'Neal for Sexton, Laurie Markinen, Ochai Obaji, Jared Vanderbilt, Walker Kessler, Malik Beasley, Talon Horton Tucker, Stanley Johnson, Belarmo, eight first-round picks, six unprotected, one lightly protected, three pick swaps, plus what could be to come with those veterans. Elsewhere in the WNBA, local legend Sue Bird retires, calls it a career, a four-time champion, a 13-time All-Star. The all-time assist leader retires after 21 seasons. Give it up for Sue Bird. And lastly, to around, you know, I'm getting a little emotional right here, talking the last full sports, man. Um, U.S. Open... Rafael Nadal suffers a loss. I was super bummed. I watched that on TV. Um, Coco Goff lost as well. Obviously, Serena Williams officially retires after losing in the third round. When Serena Williams won her first U.S. Open match, Greg Popovich was the 106th on the all-time wins list. Tom Brady, Tom Brady had not thrown his first Michigan touchdown pass. LeBron James had not made his high school debut. And Tim Duncan was the reigning NBA Rookie of the Year. Legend. Serena Williams is a fucking legend. Down to the semifinals. We have uh, Tiafo, who had defeated Rafael Nadal, taking on Alcarez. 3-22 ranked. Rudd and Kachanov going out at 5-27. So lots of lower seeds. No Djokovic because of the vaccine. On the women's side, we have a lot of lower seeds going as well. Swiatek, Sabalinka, Garcia, and Jabor, 5-17-1-6. The U.S. Open will be finishing soon. That is episode 99. Holy shit, what a show. Your Los Angeles Chargers, your Houston Astros taking on the Mets. Battle of L.A. in the NFL. Come at me, ya boy. Check out Field Supplements. You want this energy? Go to FueledSupplements.com. Help small business. That's what it's about. We'll see you guys next week. MMA only.